If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to open to Psalm 137, and we are going to look at God's Word this morning in Psalm. We're walking through this series, Real People Following the Real God in a Real World, Psalm 137. And the message this morning, Remembering Hurts. You saw Donna, one of my sisters, here a few minutes ago this morning. The truth is, I've got two other sisters. There were four of us growing up. Uh, I'm the oldest, three younger sisters. Um, doesn't always work out that way for you guys, but if you have to have three sisters, I recommend having them all younger than you. It uh, worked out well for me that way. I like to think we get along fairly well today, uh, but some people see us today and say, did you always get along like this? Uh, and I would say to you that if you saw us when we were younger, you might ask a different question. Will you ever get along with each other? Like most siblings happen. Uh, if you grew up in a, as an only child in a household, you may not have experienced that. And if you grew up as an only child, you missed out on one of the great pastimes that happen when you grow up in a household of multiple children. And that great pastime is telling on one another. <laughs> And uh, it's something that uh, happens very naturally. You don't have to teach kids this. Um, somehow they know this. Because uh, my kids, I never taught them this. And, and yet my son will come up and say, do you know what Isabella did? And my daughter will come up, do you know what Isaac did? And like when you're a parent, you've got to learn at first how to handle that information. Because in one sense, at the first time I think I heard it, I'm like, well, you know, give me the information. I want to know. And then I grew a little more, and I was like, wait, don't tattletale. I'm not supposed to listen to that. Now I'm to the point of I've gotten a little bit wiser, and my question is, what did you do to make them do this? This is often the way it goes. And the reason it happens is because kids don't like to be wronged, right? If you're a parent or just, you know, you growing up in your household, you probably heard it. It's not fair. And so they don't like it when things aren't fair, and they don't like to be wronged, and they don't like when someone else does something that they feel wrong, so they tell them one another. It's like the mother that uh, heard her, uh, her son crying one day, screaming, and uh, her, her, seven-year-old, her seven-year-old boy, and she goes into the room, and he is screaming, and her, his two, her two-year-old daughter's there, and she says, son, what's wrong? And he said, she was pulling my hair. And the mother said, oh, sweetie, well, she's, she's just two. She, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't know anybody. She doesn't know that that hurts. She doesn't mean to hurt you. She doesn't know that hurts. So the mother leaves and leaves the room. And a few minutes later, she hears the daughter screaming. She goes back to the room and she looks at her son and she said, what happened? And he said, well, she knows now. <laughs> she knows now it hurts. We don't like to be wrong. Kids, adults don't like to be wronged either, right? We have different ways of telling on each other. It usually involves lawyers and courtrooms. Uh, but we have different ways of telling on each other. We don't like to be wronged either. And one of the things, reasons we call this series Real People Following the Real God in a Real World is because these feelings that we have, sometimes we can think that the Bible can't understand them or that God doesn't understand them. But the truth is God created us in all our emotions and he understands the vast variety of our emotions. Some people look at the Bible and they think it's just full of happy stories or it's just full of maybe angry commands. 
But what it's full of, when we come to the book of Psalms, what we often find are real people that understand real experiences in life and often real pain. Real people living in a very real world. This morning we come to a psalm written by someone who gives voice to the words of a group of people who had been severely hurt and wronged. It was not necessarily just an interpersonal conflict. It was a conflict of nations. Uh, These people were living in the city of Jerusalem. This is back uh, well before Christ, uh, a thousand years or so before Christ. And the nation of Babylon... You've probably heard of that from the history books. Large nation at that time took over a lot of different countries in the area. And they took over Jerusalem along with another country called Edom. And they came in and they invaded. And when they invaded back then, you know how it went. It wiped everything out. Burned the buildings. They took everything of value. They killed many people. And they, ones they didn't kill, they often took as prisoners or made them live as their prisoners. So Psalm 137 is coming out of this experience of city being decimated, wiped out. We hear stories like this in our world today with some of the wars and things that are going on, whole towns and cities completely annihilated. And that's what is being written about when we come to Psalm 137. And my question as we come to this is, what do we do in times of great pain? What do you do when you have been not just a little wronged, but severely wronged? What do you do? What do you think about God in those times? How are we to pray in those times? So Psalm 137, this is how the psalmist prayed, and these are the words that he gave to his pain. It says this, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy... Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. That last verse kind of catches you off guard, doesn't it? Strong, strong language. Okay, let's get something out of the way right at the beginning. The irony of having a baby dedication on the day that we are talking about a scripture that ends with a plea for God to dash kids against rocks, the irony is not lost on me. Uh, let me tell you how, how something like this happens, because normally you're going to say, well, this isn't the scripture you'd choose for a child dedication Sunday. Probably not. Here's how this goes. Um, months ahead of time, Pastor Brian and I usually go away, and we're praying and think about the scriptures that we're going to pray, uh, preach, and share with the church. And, uh, and so we go away. We lay those out 
from now through really the end of that, well, from then through the end of the year. And those are the Sundays that we lay out the scriptures. And then sometimes families come to us and say, hey, we want to dedicate our child. And we look at the schedule and we say, well, what works for you guys? What works with the church schedule? Great, we'll put it on there. And that's how that works. And then this is how this works. About Saturday night at five o'clock, something goes off in my head that says, we're doing a baby dedication tomorrow. I'm preaching on Psalm 137. This could be interesting. (laughs) It's not an easy passage of Scripture, but to be honest, it's why I chose it and why I thought that it's important to preach it. Because there are times where you will read through the Bible and you will come across a Scripture that's difficult. And you will say, how does this fit in with who God is? How is this the Word of God to me? And I think it's important not to avoid, not to ignore, not to go around those Scriptures. And so sometimes you read through the Psalms and you'll come across a Psalm like this that sounds very vindictive. Sounds like it's calling down curses on people. There's a word for them. They're called imprecatory Psalms. And they're there. They're written by people who have been severely hurt. And they're giving voice to those hurts. However, as I thought about the baby dedication this morning, I also thought that seeing little Mia here on stage and here in the picture can also help us in this sermon. Because here's what you have to understand. The person that's praying this prayer is asking for what's been done to him to be done to his enemies. Every one of us, if our child is hurt, or any child is hurt, there is an anger that would come up within us. There is a response that would come out from within us. I remember a few years ago when the Penn State stuff came out with Jerry Sandusky, and I remember listening to radio shows, sports talk radio shows, because it was obviously a sports issue. And and I remember listening, and they could not come up with enough vindictive, strong language to just say how evil this person was. Because when something happens to children, When something happens to the ones that can't protect themselves, there is something that rises up within us that says this isn't right and something needs to be done about it. And this is the position that he is writing Psalm 137 out of, that this is what they did to our infants. Lord, do it to them. And that's what this prayer is coming out of this pain. I think we can come to this psalm And the temptation can be to underestimate the words that are spoken. We say, oh, they're just using hyperbole. Oh, they're just exaggerating. But the only reason we do that is because we underestimate the pain that's being felt. Most of us will honestly, thank God, never feel this kind of pain. We live in what can be argued to be the most wealthiest, strongest, most comfortable nation on earth. Now, we can argue about who's more comfortable than who, but if you just go outside the walls of the country and compare it to much of the world, a billion people who live on less than $2 a day, the argument kind of sounds a little silly. We live in a country where we have health care. Now, we can argue about, and we will argue about in this political season, whose responsibility it is to pay for it. But no one is arguing that in the United States of America, if someone is sick and in need of health care, that they shouldn't be helped. 
We live in this place, in this place of comfort. We live in a place where we throw out more food than many fam- in a day than many families will eat in a week. We, we live in a country where a restaurant with a buffet will throw out more food at the end of a day than a whole village in some parts of the world might consume in a week. There are parts of the world that don't understand the term leftovers. Like they don't even have voice for that, let alone leaving a restaurant with food wrapped in tinfoil shaped like a duck. We live in a world that is very comfortable often, many of us, and we, many of us, will not experience the pain that is talked about here, but some of you might. I don't know your story. I don't know all you've gone through. Some of you have traveled and come to this country because of things that forced you to leave your home country. Some of you have gone through great tragedy in your life, and maybe you do have a time in your life where somebody severely wronged you, caused you severe pain. My question this morning is, what do you do in that moment? What do you do when remembering hurts? I want to give you a statement, and I just want to unpack it for the next few minutes together with us, and here's the statement. When remembering hurts, remember God, pray that he remembers your pain, and don't forget about his pain for you. And you just leave that up there, John, for the rest of the service till I come to another scripture. When remembering hurts, remember God, pray that he remembers your pain, and don't forget about his pain for you. When remembering hurts. You know, so the first part of Psalm 137 says, There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And here's what I thought. There's two times that remembering hurts for us. Sometimes when you're in the midst of a really painful situation, what hurts is to remember that there were times when it wasn't painful. That's what they're saying in this psalm, that they sat down beside these waters of Babylon. They're living in oppression. They're living as prisoners. They're living of captors. But they can remember when life wasn't like this. They can remember when life was good. And so it causes even more pain now because they can look back and remember when life wasn't this painful. And there are times when you're in the midst of a hurt that what's going to make it even more painful is you remember life before the tragedy. You rem- the reason it hurts so much that you lost someone you love no matter what age they were is because you remember how good life was with them. You wake up with aches and pains in your body and it hurts because it hurts, but it also hurts because you remember when you can run and jump and get up quickly and it didn't take a couple hours to get you going in the morning. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) So it hurts more because you remember that. But then there's sometimes where you're past the painful situation and what hurts is just remembering the wrong that's been done to you. When you look back and you think about that time when that pain was done to you, what that person did to you, how that affected your life, how that changed things, how things might have been different if this didn't happen, and it hurts to remember that. So what do you do when remembering hurts? The first thing you do is remember God. Remember God. Verses 5 and 6 He says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. This is not homesickness. This is more than that. 
Remembering Jerusalem for the writer of this psalm is not about some kind of nationalism or just remembering, oh, I want to go home. Jerusalem for them was their seat of worship. It was the place they encountered and met with God. It was the place of their, where they uh, had festivals and sacrifices. It was the place where they met with God and God met with them. And the psalmist says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, and by that saying, if I forget God and his city, then may my right hand not even be able to play an instrument. And may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, because what good is my body that has been created by God if I can't use it to remember and to worship God? So he says, the first thing in the midst that we're to do is I need to remember God. I need to remember his city. I need to remember who he is. And may I never, even in the midst of a foreign land, even in the midst of all that's been done to me and all the pain I have experienced, Lord, may I never forget you. And may I never forget your city. May I never forget the worship of you. This is not easy for us in times of pain. When we come to a time of pain and a place of pain, sometimes we just want to stay there. We want to dwell there. But that's not healthy. That's not healthy, and you can't do that forever. These God worshipers recognized that life was not all about their pain. But sometimes, when we're in the midst of pain, that's all we can think about. And all we can think about is our pain, and our life becomes our pain. The psalmist is saying, no, 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 remember God, because if you forget God in the midst of your pain, that's the worst thing that could happen. Worse than anything that's been done to you. Finding time to worship in pain in some of the most deep, can be some of the most deep and rich worship experiences of your life. If you've not been there, that may sound like a platitude. But if you've been there, you're probably nodding your head and you could say yes, because in that time of pain, in that place of difficulty, is often the place where God's gonna meet you like he never has before. See, it's the place of greatest need that has the opportunity for the greatest move of God in your life. I always pray three Ps for people in times of great pain. In fact, I prayed them just a few minutes ago for this family. I always ask God, God, would you show them your power? God, would you give them your peace? And would you grant them your presence? Because in the time of great pain and in the time of great difficulty, I can think of no greater three things that people need than the power of God, the presence of God, and the peace of God in their life. And that, and that in that time of great pain is the greatest opportunity to experience the power of God in a way I have. And if I have no need for a miracle, then I have no opportunity for a miracle, I have no opportunity or need for God to move then I will never see that opportunity. I will never see God move. But when I have a place, and I'm in a place where God, if you don't show up, I've got no other hope. I don't want to always be in that place, but what it is is a great opportunity for the Lord to move in my life. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, Pastor Bob Wise. Some of you know him. He's preached here before. He's our district uh, pastor in our Southern New England network. And his daughter, Chris, is dying, and some of you know that too. I'd ask you to pray for Chris. She's in her 30s, husband, kids, um, but she's got a cancer that, uh, unless God intervenes in some significant way, is not going to probably allow her to live past this year. And I look at Pastor Bob, and I asked him how he's doing, and and, uh, 
And he said, well, the peace of God and the prayers of the people are sustaining us through. And he meant it. You know, we can say those things and not mean it, but I know Pastor Bob, and he meant that the peace of God is with him because you need that in that time. Does it physically hurt? Absolutely. He told me he's lost 50 pounds in the last few months. Of course, it physically hurts. There's, there's something within you that causes difficulty, but the peace of God, the power of God, and the presence of God will move. And so he actually asked me to thank the church, to ask him to remember him in prayer and thank the church for the prayers. And I'd ask you to continue to pray for Pastor Bob and Jane and his daughter Chris and their family. It's not always easy to praise God in the midst of difficulty, and yet that's the place where if you will praise God there, you'll experience him in a greater way. Catherine Dubois, you've never heard of her. You don't know her. She lived in 1663, the late 1600s. Her great-great-grandson, Gilbert Veers, great-great to the eighth generation, was a recent editor of a magazine called Christianity Today. And he tells the story of this ancestor of his named Catherine Dubois, who lived in New York in the 1600s, and the story passed down in his family. Catherine had an infant daughter named Sarah, And in 1663, the Minisink Indians came down from the Catskill Mountains and actually took Catherine and Sarah and kidnapped them. Kept them for 10 weeks up in the mountains and no one found them. No one could find them. After 10 weeks, they figured they they got away with it and no one was coming and they were going to kill Catherine and Sarah and by that, all of her descendants. They were going to kill Catherine and Sarah. They were going to burn them. They piled up uh, logs in a pile, a a cube of logs, and they bound Catherine's arms and legs, put her on top of the logs with her child, and lit a torch to light the fire. I don't know what you would do in that moment. Would you scream? Would you call down curses upon your captors? Would you try and yell for help? I know what Catherine did in that moment. She sang. She sang a hymn that she had learned in France uh, growing up, and the hymn was based on Psalm 137. She sang this hymn out, and the captors, they didn't ask her to sing, and they didn't know what to do with this, but they asked her to sing some more. And so she continued to sing these songs, and they continued to listen to her. And she sang long enough to be rescued, that her rescuers found her and came in and were able to rescue her. And Gilbert Veers is very grateful, all her descendants that would come through her. Singing in the time of difficulty is not easy, but it's a tradition that the saints have done for years. Paul and Silas in prison, Catherine, but other saints that have gone even through extreme pain, even to their death, singing the praises of their God through difficult times. Not easy, but a time where you can experience God's presence in a new way. When when remembering hurts, remember God. Pray that he remembers your pain. Verses 7 through 9 are a prayer where the worshiper, in a sense, says to God, even as we have remembered you, won't you also remember us and remember the pain that has been caused to us? The person praying is confident that God hears and cares. 
That's what's going on in verses 7 through 9. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you for what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones, dashes them against the rocks. God, would you remember us? Would you remember the pain that's been caused us? God of justice, God of what's right, would you make this right? The prayer is one that is in line with what this psalmist would have been taught. What he's asking for is an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Not asking for severe revenge, he's just asking to make it even. He's just asking, God, would you balance the books? Because here's what they did to us. God, would you also do it to them? It's the ethic that he knew. It's the ethic that God had put in place in the old covenant. What some people don't realize, though, about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that was a limiting principle that God put in place. Because when you're living in a culture, in a nation, in a place that is operating on laws of barbarianism in many ways and no international laws, there's no laws that go across geographical boundaries, there's, there's no compacts or conferences or international laws that have been agreed to, what happens is that you take my eye, I take your life. You take my tooth, I'll take your arm. What happens is you take my goat, I kill your child. And what God said is no. The limit is what has been done to you can be done to another. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's why God sets this in place. It's actually a merciful command, not a vengeful command. It was a limiting principle that was put in place. So in this time of pain, this person prays, God, remember my pain. And that's not a bad a wrong way to pray. God, would you remember my pain? God of justice, would you remember my pain and what's been done to me? God is just and he cares about justice. God does not take pleasure in the guilty getting away with their crimes. So they cry out to this God of justice on their behalf. They cry out to God to make things right. I cannot soften these words I cannot soften the blow that they are asking for. They are asking for what has been done to them to be done to others. We might wish that they would come to this and from their experience say, oh, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemies, but it's exactly what they do. They wish it on their worst enemies. It's a valid prayer. It's a justice prayer. But there is a higher way. There is another way. Eye for an eye is like the bottom room in the house, but there is a higher room upstairs. Like the Old Testament as a whole, apart from the New Testament revealed in Jesus Christ, it is right and good and just. It's just incomplete apart from our new covenant that we live under with Christ. When remembering hurts, remember God. Pray that he remembers your pain. And don't forget about his pain for you. Jesus brings a new way to deal with our hurts and with wrongs that have been done to us. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, 
Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then in chapter 7, Jesus says these words, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. You know this last verse, as many of us would know it as the golden rule. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. I would say this is a higher ethic that Jesus calls us to. Below this would be the ethic uh, that ends the uh, end of Psalm 137, which is do to others as they have done to you. Below that, I suppose, is a, a little more barbaric ethic that would say do one to others before they do one to you. But Jesus says do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He calls them to a higher way of living. How can Jesus do that? Isn't God still a God of justice? Doesn't God care about the pain that it's been done to me? Isn't, the same God who sa- isn't this the same God who said an eye for an eye? And can't we just go back to that? Because I really want to do that. What about justice? this mean we forget about justice? Many people would say an eye for an eye sounds more fair because it makes things even, but that rule can't really satisfy in all cases, can it? Can't ever really be even. Taking from someone else doesn't bring back what you have lost. And there comes a point where taking can't match what has been taken. Is the life of an old man within a few years of dying and even exchange for a life that was cut, cut short in the early years of life with her whole life ahead of her? Is that even? Is the life of one man taken from him worth the life of millions taken in a holocaust? Score can't ever be even. Our society tries to find ways to even things out. They try and monetize pain and suffering, but money doesn't replace people, doesn't replace years of healthy and good living. It can't ever really be even. So does that mean we just forget about justice? No, of course not. Justice takes place. Some of it may take place in this world with people experiencing consequences for their wrongs. This is the rule of law. It's necessary to keep order. There's a justice that takes place in eternity that if a person chooses to carry and pay for their wrongs instead of coming to Christ for forgiveness, that there is punishment for that. But there's also a justice that Jesus knew was coming of why he could say the words he did. And the reason he could is because he knew that he was going to the cross 
And he knew that he was going to unjustly suffer more than anyone ever had before. Jesus is the only one who ever stood trial who could legitimately say, I am completely innocent, not only of this crime, of anything. And yet, he went to a cross to die, not for sins he committed, but for sins that you and I committed, that they would unjustly fall upon him and that justice could be satisfied completely in him and so that he can say to you and to me, pray for those who persecute you. You've heard it said, love your uh, friend, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he could say it because he knew the cross was coming. He knew that justice would be satisfied. And he could say it and call us to it because he knew he was going to say the words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do while he had nails in his hands on a cross. And so justice fell. And it fell on someone who didn't deserve it. And though God never ignores your pain, and I am grateful for a God of justice, I am grateful for a God who forgives me for the wrong that I have done. It's not an easy place that God calls us to. The first pain, I think the first emotion that comes up within us is similar to the psalmist in Psalm 137. But that's not the highest place that God calls us to. Let me close with a story of forgiveness that maybe can bring home what I'm trying to say and what it can look like. It's a story of a young man named Joel, a young man named Aaron and Sarah, and Sarah's parents, Melvin and Barbara. Uh, they lived out in Pennsylvania, and Joel had recently gotten his license, and he was known to be kind of an aggressive driver. He drove a little fast, and uh, so one night, he was actually leaving a church meeting, had his friends in the car, and he's driving down a two-lane Pennsylvania road. And up in the distance, they see a horse and buggy, which if you've been to Amish country in Pennsylvania, is not that unusual of a sight. Uh, he saw the horse and buggy out there, and he said to his friends in the car, he said, watch this, I'm going to put a scare into this guy. Puts the pedal down to the floor, gets going about 70 miles an hour, and pulls into the left lane to pass the buggy. The last minute and the last thing Joel saw was the nose of the horse start to move in front of his car because the horse and buggy was making a left turn. He hit the brakes as quick as he could, but not quick enough because the car plowed into the buggy. The next thing he remembered is waking up off the side of the road in a ditch with blood all over his hands from the windshield that had shattered, but really that's all that he could tell had happened to him. Checked with his friends, and, and although shaken up and hurt, they were all right and not physically harmed. And about that instant later, a knock starts coming at the window, someone pounding at the window, and there is this young man, he didn't know it at the time, but his name's Aaron, holding this woman who looked like his mom in his hands, and she's all bloody, and he's banging on the window saying, does anyone know CPR? 
And they made their way out of the car and somebody ran to the closest house to call for help. But by the time help got there, they got Sarah to the hospital and the only thing that she could do was be put on life support. But if you know the Amish, the only life support the Amish believe in is the life support that God gives. And so Sarah died. And he found out later that Sarah was not Aaron's mom. She was just so bloody and beaten up that what he couldn't tell is she was his 19-year-old new bride. And Aaron was in his early 20s, and they had just recently gotten married. And Joel, of course, the weight of it falls upon him, the stupidity of what he's done, the, all the, if you could go back and change it. And he felt like he needed to go to the funeral. Didn't know what to reception he would get but he felt like he needed to go so he got the information and the address and he and his dad drove to go to the funeral but they drove to the wrong address that was in the paper they drove to the actually to the address of Sarah's parents they pulled in and walked into the house and there was Barbara and Melvin and what to expect in that moment Sarah's family recognized him knew who he was greeted him and then extended their forgiveness to him. They said that they forgive them for what had happened. They embraced him and they offered their forgiveness to him. In fact, uh, Barbara and Melvin needed a ride to the funeral and so Joel and his father, they got in the car and Melvin didn't say much but they drove to the funeral together. Pulls up to the funeral and all kinds of horse and buggies fill the yard. And Joel getting out of the car, even though he had gotten this reception from Sarah's parents, he did not know what to expect when he walked into that funeral parlor. He didn't know if they would yell, if they would scream, if they would run him off, if they would all come out with shotguns. He timidly entered. And one after another, these Amish people, these people who love God and committed to his teaching, extend forgiveness and offer their forgiveness to Joel. He goes into the back room, and uh, that's where Sarah was laid, and Aaron was in there with him, with her. And Aaron sees Joel and embraces him and says, I forgive you. Not deserved, not earned, but offers the forgiveness of God to him. That wasn't where the story ends. Barbara and Melvin thought it was important for them to continue to get to know Joel and hear his story. So they would invite Joel and his family over for dinner. They wrote, Barbara and Melvin, along with their church and their Amish uh, friends, they wrote letters to judges and to lawyers and said, we have forgiven them. Would you extend mercy? Would you extend mercy to them? Would you not punish uh, this young man? Uh, and, and they wrote letters on his behalf, and he didn't end up actually going, having to go to prison. There was probation and other penalties. But it didn't even stop there. Barbara and Melvin continued the relationship. And when Joel would get married, Barbara and Melvin were there in the congregation celebrating his marriage. And it didn't stop there because Joel and his new wife felt God calling them to the mission field. And it was Barbara and Melvin who gave financial support for them to go to the mission field and spread this gospel that they had received so profoundly in their life. 
It's one thing, I mean, whatever you think about the Amish, one of the things that they offer is a profound understanding of the forgiveness they've received and offering that forgiveness to others. It happened a few years ago, again, with the Nickel Mines shooting tragedy. And I remember the news reports that came out when the shooting happened and when one of the little girl's parents that was shot the day after her funeral then went to the funeral of the shooter and extended their forgiveness to the widow and to their family and to the people. And I remember, if you, if, you, if you followed those reports, I remember listening in the days following and I remember hearing people say, they can't really mean it. They don't know, they're in shock. And I remember some people even saying, this isn't healthy psychologically for them. They haven't processed their grief. But, the, but what was actually true was the exact opposite. They had so processed this grief, their world, and this theology. What they understood was that they have received a great forgiveness, and it was their obligation to extend a great forgiveness to others. There is this higher ethic that's called to When you're remembering hurts, remember God. Remember to ask God to remember your pain, but also remember his pain for you. And that's what I believe these families did. That's what I believe God calls us to in our place of pain. To remember also that God has extended great forgiveness to us and he calls us to forgive and extend it to others. So what does this mean for you, for me? If you've caused great pain to another person and today you are feeling the weight of that pain you have caused and you need to confess that to God and accept forgiveness and the payment of that justice that fell upon Jesus and the wrongs you have done, then today is the day to do that. I know this message is mostly about those people that may have experienced pain, but as I thought about the message, I thought, you know what? There are people in here that maybe you are carrying around a burden because you have been the one who caused the pain. And you have not allowed yourself to experience and receive forgiveness that God offers. And maybe today you need to ask God for forgiveness and receive that for you. I can imagine it being in Joel's shoes that he would say, I don't deserve it. And I can imagine for much of his life, he probably denied that forgiveness, and yet it was freely offered him. And I can imagine that some here this morning, you may be doing the same thing. I don't deserve it. It was my fault. I did it. I knew what I was doing. It was my fault. And yet, God doesn't offer it to you because you deserve it. God offers it to you out of his love through Jesus Christ, who suffered for you. And if you're here today and you've been wronged, is there someone you need to offer forgiveness to? Do you need to trust that God remembers your pain? Maybe you are hanging on to getting even. I do not tell you to forget justice because God is a God of justice. I'm asking you to trust God as a God of justice. I'm asking you to consider that the God who allowed the unjust punishment to fall upon his son, to consider trusting him with your pain. 
to inviting him to allow you to let go of the need to get even, of the need to feel like that someday, that if you get your pound of flesh, that it will somehow alleviate your pain. I think there are many in this room who would tell you today, it doesn't work that way. Because you can get your pound of flesh and still carry around your pain. I would invite you to come to God and ask him to open up your heart to be able to forgive as you have been forgiven. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning with a very difficult passage of your word, a very challenging passage. But Lord, I thank you for a very real passage of your word because we are real people who often get angry and hurt when other people hurt us. And we wonder maybe sometimes if you understand, and I am thankful for this passage of Scripture that lets us know you understand. You understand our pain. You understand our difficulty and our grieving. So Lord, we come before you and ask for you to do the work that I could not and we could not ask any person to do on their own, Lord. I ask you to do Lord, what no counselor would ask a person to do, maybe. What no person would be able to feel the courage to ask. What I ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to forgive people who do not deserve forgiveness. Not because we are some magnanimous people who are able to do it, but out of recognition of who you are and what you've done for us, that we are also people who do not deserve forgiveness, who do not deserve to be forgiven. Lord, would you, with your Holy Spirit, empower us to forgive and to show love to those in our lives who may be unlovable in many ways and not deserve it. To love not only those who love us, Lord, to love our enemies, to pray for those who want to do harm to us. And Lord, may we in that moment understand a little bit more of the heart of our Father who loves us. Lord, I pray for that man or woman who's in this room today who has caused someone pain and never allowed themselves to receive your forgiveness. This morning, Lord, I ask that you would, as they come to you with their pain, would you do a work in their heart that allows them to forgive themselves and receive the gift that you offer. Father, your word says that the wages of our sin is death, but the gift that you offer is eternal life. What we have earned, our wages, are death and punishment and justice. What you offer, your gift, is life. I pray that any man or woman in this room that needs to receive that this morning, that you would open their heart to you and what you need to do there this morning. Father, we love you. We want to be a people who walk in freedom, not mired down by the burdens or the things that have done to us. Allow us to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.